Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. We have a really important topic. You know, we've talked about PFAS in the drinking water um, and how it's becoming a nationwide problem. Um, we've talked about this a couple of times before. You know, we talked with Rob Belote, who wrote the book Exposure and then had the movie Dark Waters made about his life. He came on back in October and talked to us about his journey with PFAS. Um, and then we talked with the Environmental Working Group. And we talked a little bit more about the human health impacts. We talked about uh, some of the public policy impacts. But what we haven't covered is something that I think is really vital and how this issue is impacting small local water agencies and how they have to deal with it. So our guest today is actually a good friend of mine, Olivia Sanwong. She's the president of the board of directors for what is known here in in my neck of the woods in California as Zone 7, but the official name is the Alameda County Flood Control Board of Directors, uh, representing Zone 7 in California. And so I'm really excited to have Olivia on and to cover this topic because I think it's important for people to know what people in Olivia's position are going through trying to deal with this issue. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Olivia. I am so happy to have you on the show. Yes. Hello, Jill. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. Well, we're thrilled to have you because I think it's important for people to understand your plight in all of this. So PFAS in drinking water is really receiving a lot of media attention all over the country. But I really want to give my listeners an understanding of how this issue is impacting, like I said, small local water agencies. So let's begin by having you tell our listeners about the Zone 7 Water Agency, where you're located, how many people do you serve, and where does the water that you deliver to customers come from? Sure. And, you know, I also want to uh, add on to your comment about how this is gaining so much coverage around the United States. I would also say around the world, too. Yes. To prepare for this morning, I also looked at some of what's happening in Europe. So maybe as we continue the conversation, we we might go in that direction. Um, However, in terms of Zone 7, we are located here in what's known as the Tri-Valley area of the San Francisco Bay area in the East Bay, so east of San Francisco. Um, More specifically, we have over 260,000 people that we serve in Pleasanton, Livermore, Dublin, and through a special agreement with the Dublin San Ramon Services District, the Doherty Valley area of San Ramon. And so those are the cities here in the San Francisco East Bay that we support. Um, And so we support treated drinking water to residents and businesses in those cities, as well as untreated water for irrigation of about 3,500 acres, and it's primarily vineyards in the south of Moore Valley area. In addition to water supply, we also are the flood, as you mentioned, the flood control, flood protection agency of this area. And it's interesting, we are, we are very unique in that we, um, as both the water supply agency and as the flood protection agency, we're basically tasked with managing for droughts and floods in this area. And that's not typical of one agency, particularly a small agency such as ourselves, um, to be able to do both. 
Right, right. And, you know, you have a mix of surface water and groundwater. I'm not sure that all the residents who receive water from Zone 7 realize how much of their water is imported, but talk to us a little bit about that mix between imported surface water and groundwater. Yes, so on the water supply side, um, we are part of the California State Water Project, Mm -hmm. and in a typical year, about... 80% of our total water that we at Zone 7 manage will come from the state water project. But then we are also the Sustainable Groundwater uh, Basin Management Authority, where we manage the groundwater basin in this area, in the Livermore Amador Valley region. And we will pump water through wells to provide groundwater as um, an additional supply or as part of the primary supply of uh, water that we deliver, but then also during drought years, that groundwater basin becomes so vital, especially this recent mega drought that we had in California mm-hmm. um, from, 2000, you know, from 2011 to about 2017, we were very dependent on having access to the groundwater basin and to be able to tap into that water source when we didn't have um, the state water project allocation. So state water project in California it comes from the Sierra snowpack and it travels through the um, Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta region. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the Great California Aqueduct. For those who are familiar with California, this water travels all the way to Southern California and is a primary source of water supply for um, both the Central Valley, where we have a lot of agriculture, as well as Los Angeles and San Diego. And we here in the Tri-Valley Zone 7 um, area of service, we are also on the state water project. So we are on that same water resource. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, let's get into PFAS a little bit. At what point did your water agency, and it's it's mine too, full disclosure, everybody, uh, this is my hometown water supply we're talking about. At what point did Zone 7 start testing for PFAS and what, what prompted the voluntary testing? Yes, so in 2013, Zone 7 proactively monitored for PFAs, but did not detect any. And it wasn't until we detected this in 2018-2019 that we started to take a closer look. Um, and this is also about the time frame that this uh, topic really started to surface a bit more in areas outside of West Virginia and North Carolina and um, a few other places in New York and Vermont where there might have been manufacturing sites Mm -hmm. um, where there were some wastewater concerns. So in 2019, we initiated quarterly monitoring in accordance with the California State Order. And then this year, 2020, we've been voluntarily continuing this monitoring. And then just recently, we did receive a California State Order to continue this quarterly monitoring. And Mm -hmm. the reason we started this as you know, at Zone 7, we do have a practice to proactively monitor for contaminants of emerging concerns. And we were aware um, you know, in 2013 that PFAs were part of this contaminants of emerging concerns. Uh, I believe the um, DuPont case mm-hmm. uh, in West Virginia, and you, you, you referenced, um, you know, your previous guest and also, um, you know, being familiar with uh, the movie Dark Waters as well as the book Exposure. I I believe that happened in the mid-2000s era when that that court case um, 
was uh, determined. And so in 2013, or by 2013, Zone 7 saw this as a contaminant of emerging concern, so we started to test for it. Um, and, you know, the other thing I'll mention, too, is that we have a state-of-the-art laboratory facility at our DelVal water treatment plant at Zone 7. However, we do not have the in-house capability for um, testing PFOS, and so we do have to use an outside laboratory for this. And I believe this is the case for a lot of water agencies of our size. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And when you started to detect PFAS in the water, um, and these it's a family of chemicals, and my listeners are, are pretty well aware of you know what, what we mean when we say PFAS as a family of chemicals, but what did you find and how did the contamination levels that you found in some of the local wells compare to contamination levels around the state of California? Yes, so in terms of our communication and transparency, um, some of the things that our staff does is make sure that the Zone 7 Board of Directors is updated after the results of each one of these studies. So each time we take the sample and we send it out to um, an outside laboratory for testing that is shared with the Board of Directors, of which I'm a part of and currently serving as president of this year. And... In terms of communicating with the general public, we do have an annual water quality report. And in 2018, when we first detected this in um, one of our wells where it was above the California state notification level, we made sure to include those monitoring results in a special section in our annual water quality report Mm -hmm. and also send all that data to our retailers. So one of the things about... Zone 7, I'm going to back up a bit to your first question about who we are at Zone 7 is we are what's known as a water supply wholesaler. So while we serve many residents and businesses in um, Pleasanton, Livermore, Dublin, and parts of San Ramon, we are not the direct water retailer. So Mm -hmm. we will serve the retailers in those areas. I had mentioned Dublin, San Ramon Services District. That's one of our retailers. City of Pleasanton is a second retailer. There's a private company, Cal Water Services, that services half of Livermore, and then the city of Livermore services the other half. And mm-hmm. so we're really that interface between the state water project and pumping water from the ground and then providing that wholesale water supply to those retailers. And the retailers then are tasked with getting the water to people's homes and businesses, as well as monitoring the water meters in such a way to be able to bill the the customers. And so we have to have good communication with our retailers because they really have that direct tie to, um, you know, the, 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 the end consumers of water. So it's important for us to also have good communication with our retailers. I know that was a long winded answer, but it's really important to get that point across. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in 2019 report, we also had a special information section on PFAS, and we really took um, great care to design the report so that we could, you know, explain what this is and why it's important to keep monitoring and communicating about this. Um, and then we also proactively share this information on sites such as Nextdoor, Facebook, as well as our own Zone 7 water website. Mm-hmm. And right, even and this is website, all. We have a web page. 
Yeah, this is important stuff. And we're going to talk about more about the community outreach um, that Zone 7 did in a moment, but we're going to take a quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. We've got much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Olivia Sanwong. She is the president of the board of directors for a local water agency in Northern California called Zone 7. They have been hit with PFAS contamination and they're trying to deal with it. And I think it's part of the story of PFAS in the drinking water that hasn't been well covered. And in other words, how does a small local water agency that wasn't planning for this, didn't know it was coming, uh, how do they deal with trying to ensure their water is safe for the people that they provide it for? So, Olivia, back to the question that I asked, you know, before the the break, when you did find contamination of PFAS in the the water uh, supply that you have, um, what were the levels and and how did they compare to other municipalities that had PFAS contamination in the state? I mean, I know that the California Water Board uh, website has a map of the state and and the contamination levels for various parts of the state and and. Zone 7 has an area that lights up uh, pretty good. So talk to us about your contamination levels and and what you did when you realized those contamination levels were that high. Yes. um, So right now, this past Wednesday, we had our regularly scheduled board of directors meeting for Zone 7. And in that meeting, we received a PowerPoint presentation. So that's what I'm looking at right now. Um, 
And in terms of one of our wells, Mocho One Well, this well is currently offline. We took it offline in April of 2019 when we detected PFOS, part of this family of um, TFOS. We, we, we detected values well above the California response level of 40 PPT. Mm-hmm. And so right now we do have the ability to take this well offline and not use it. So none of none of the water from this well is right now being sent out to um, any of the customers within the Zone 7 area. It is completely shut down. Mm-hmm. And that is the method that we are using right now currently to respond to um, the detection and testing uh, when these chemicals are discovered. Um, the, the, the part that gets tricky, and I think we'll, we'll make this a little bit of a longer conversation, is, you know, we live in California. We are subject to drought. And while right now, you know, we have a very um, diversified water po- portfolio and access to different water resources, during times of drought, as I mentioned earlier in this program, we are so dependent on being able to access these wells and being able to pump water from our ground um, and so by having one of our wells out of production or um, not being able to use because of, in this case, PFOS, that really does limit our ability to then um, be confident during periods of drought. And so, you know, getting to your point about how local water agencies have to manage through this, this is where it gets to be very tricky is mm-hmm. how, how do we manage this in the long term? Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I know that for for a lot of people, this came as a surprise. Um, you know, when we look at, say, the movie Dark Waters, I mean, the people that got impacted by the chemicals, the PFAS chemicals in their water, they knew the source. They were right downstream from a DuPont plant. And so they could identify where this was coming from. Um, but that the, the area that you represent... Yeah, it doesn't have yeah, a DuPont plant. Many years, though, I believe, to, to, to figure that out, correct? If, if, I, if I remember the story. It, it, took, it took many years um, to rough. prove it <laughs> yes. in court, yes. but it didn't take too long to figure it out. It just took many years to prove it in court. Um, but do Got you it. know what the source of your PFAS contamination is at this point? Yes, that's. I, I think that's the, the big question right now is... Um, what is the source? You know, we have many hypotheses, and I, I know you and I previously talked through some of these hypotheses. And I, I can say at Zone 7, one of the things we at the Board of Directors did is we approved a study with a firm, Jacobs Engineering, to investigate this. And we have not yet received the results of those studies back. Um, we anticipate that that should be back sometime within the next year. So we, we will have um, that information soon in terms of what this engineering firm has discovered. However, we know we, we, we know within this region, you know, some of the sites within our watershed that we would want to take a closer look. And we, we do have previous reports um, where we, we do keep track of some of these sites. So within this watershed, we do have one super fun site, the National Lab, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, Sandia National Lab, and I believe it's just the Lawrence Livermore National Lab that's a super fun site, not Sandia. And um, these labs were actually, you know, one of the leaders in regards to the Manhattan Project and uh, focusing on, you know, nuclear science. Um, so that is a documented super fun site within the EPA. 
and it is located within our watershed. We also mm-hmm. have the uh, one of the largest landfills in the San Francisco Bay Area located within our watershed. Um, our Altamont landfill mm-hmm. is the landfill for all of Alameda County, as well as the primary landfill for San Francisco. And so we, we, we do know that we are receiving that waste stream from a pretty large area here within our watershed. We mm-hmm. also have a pretty large military base in Dublin at camp, what we call Camp Parks today. But since World War II, that site has gone through a number of different military transformations and was also one of the primary spots during World War II that the military would bring in, um, you know, the active duty members before they would enter the um, Pacific Rim region of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's a number of uh, industrial sites that we've had over the years. I saw that at one point we did have Intel here in the Tri-Valley region um, manufacturing silicon chips. And there, there is certainly, um, you know, some requirements in regards to the, the wastewater um, mm-hmm. and, and the waste that comes out of that type of production. So, you know, with these forever chemicals, even though Intel is no longer located here, as an example, we don't know if that's the source either, I want to clarify, but Intel is no longer located here in, in our watershed in terms of manufacturing, but because they once were during this time frame of the forever chemicals, there's always that possibility that that could have been a source. And, um, you know, that's something we want to investigate, but it will also be very difficult to pinpoint. Uh, and so I want to set expectations clearly that, you know, we will get these results from the engineering firm, but we, we, we may not always even know for sure. And that, that, that's part of the uncertainty about this issue that, that can feel very frustrating to me as a member of the Zone 7 Board of Directors, but also for myself as a consumer who does mm-hmm. value having clean, safe drinking water. Absolutely. I want to shift a little bit and talk about uh, the absence of standards around PFAS and forever chemicals. The US EPA has known about it for a long time, and they still have not issued national regulations or standards for this family of chemicals. How does the absence of national standards impact a small local water agency like uh, Zone 7? Yes, so we have had many... um, meetings where we have discussed this topic and what we're going to do to address it. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, we have an entire well that's currently shut down. And while we can provide, uh, you know, the, um, the water we've guaranteed, the water supply we've guaranteed using other resources right now, uh, should we get into a period of drought, of mega drought again, that's going to be a real uh you know, delicate balance with this major sure. well shut down. And so with the absence of, you know, federal and even in California state regulatory guidance and standards, um, it, it can be very, it, it takes us a lot of time to figure out how we're going to plan for this. So I know you um, were at our meeting Wednesday night. We had a three hour long meeting. The majority of the meeting was focused on this topic and what we're going to do to address this, to, to, to plant, basically what we're doing is planning for drought conditions and how we're going to be able to use wells that are currently out of production or wells that are approaching some of the standards in other states that we anticipate California may adopt in the coming years. So right now the U.S. EPA has an advisory level 
from the advisory level is pretty high, actually, for both PFOS and PFOA. It's at 70 PPT, um, which compared to the states that currently have um, MCLs, maximum uh, contaminant levels, um, if you look at Michigan, that's at 16, New Hampshire's 15, New Jersey's 13, and New York is 10. The EPA, mm-hmm. and this is for PFOS specifically, the EPA is at 70. So the EPA is significantly higher at that advisory level than the last one I just mentioned, New York, which is, which is at 10. And then Vermont has an interesting MCL standard. They do it as a summation across uh, most of the family of these PS, um, PFCs. Mm-hmm. And so that sum is at 20. In California, we do have an advisory um, notification level and response level, and that is um, the response level is at 40 PPT, so that is lower than the US EPA. So we do have a much more stricter advisory level in California, but we don't have that MCL that mm-hmm. Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, and Vermont have. This is something that is being discussed at, in Sacramento at the state level in California, and we do anticipate having MCLs in the coming years, and this is a lot of the conversation Wednesday night at the Zone 7 Board of Directors meeting, and one reason why the conversation took so long, because to get these MCLs, we also need a public health goal, and this is also part of what the EPA needs to establish in order to have an MCL at the federal level or and or maybe to modify that advisory level to bring it from 70 PPT to something a little bit lower, potentially. Mm-hmm. And those public health goals do need to be established, and they haven't yet been established in California. We anticipate the public health goal should be established in about 2022 with the MCLs coming 2023. That's the timeline that um, we predict. However, you know, with the current situation with the pandemic and also here in California, we just had and we are still managing through a pretty catastrophic uh, wildfire season. There's just so many other um, issues that I believe are taking immediate priority that I, I'm not sure, you know, it's so tough to predict that timeline, right? So we, we hope that 2022-2023 um, timeline is met, but we also have to remember that our you know, state government is also dealing with a lot of other um you know, high priority topics right now too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and and it all depends on um, you know if we can. We have a big state government. <laughs> Cal EPA is is big and well staffed, and hopefully the the drinking water division um, can keep keep moving forward with healthy guidelines. You know that, but I know that in the interim, that's a very difficult conundrum for a local water agency because you're trying to plan for things and make sure that you have, you know, plans in place, which we'll talk about in just a moment, based on yet to be discovered and announced maximum contamination levels. And that's a really tough position to be in. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Olivia Sanwong from the Zone 7 Water Board. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. And if you've just tuned in, I'll catch you up. Our guest today is Olivia Sanwong, and she is the president of the board of directors for my local water agency, uh, Zone 7. And they are located in the East Bay area of the San Francisco Bay area. And they have PFAS. You know, there's PFAS that has been found in some of their wells, some of the city of Pleasanton, where I live, some of our wells, our groundwater has it. And, you know, this is a really difficult position to be in as a, a director for a local water agency in the absence of national standards, in the absence of state standards around maximum contamination levels for PFAS and drinking water. Um, there's a lot that goes into trying to manage this, and that's what I wanted to show today. I wanted Olivia to come on and talk to us about some of the things that the Zone 7 Water Agency is grappling with in order to deal with the PFAS contamination. So, um, as you mentioned, Olivia, just this week, uh, your board of directors for Zone 7 received a staff report on plans to treat the water. So, I'd like for you to talk to us about that report and some of the the different components that were involved in the treatment options that you were evaluating. Yes. So in that report, we looked at all of our wells. So, so this concern, just to back up, and, and this is a little bit repetitive of what we talked about earlier, but where our concern is, is when we pump water from the groundwater, that's where we're detecting some of these PFAS um, chemicals in, in the wells. And so that's where we then need to treat the water in a specific way to make sure that the water that's being delivered does not include those contaminants. And today I can confirm that the water that we're delivering does not include those contaminants. We've shut down the one well where the detection levels have been at a 
very high level. And then um, in other wells where it's detected at a lower level, what we're able to do is we're able to blend, we're able to treat that water through our reverse osmosis um, facility that we have, and then also blend it with surface water, with um, water from the state water project. And that way we are able to deliver water that does not include these contaminants in it. So that's what we're doing today. What we were talking about Wednesday night was, okay, going forward, we know that we need to have access to some of these wells Mm -hmm. when we have periods of drought, and we need to have treatment options for um, those wells. So the one well that we have shut down is located near our reverse osmosis plant. So to um, be able to use the water from that well, we we may be able to come up with some other options that we're exploring. and so what we were really focused on then Wednesday night was what do we do about these other wells that are starting to get notification levels or starting to get close to the notification levels um, within uh, the California advisory guidelines, as well as near the MCL, the maximum contaminant levels, uh, where we think that California is going to um, set. Uh, and we as you mentioned in the previous segment, you know, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, and Vermont have those MCLs. So we're right now planning for an MCL within that range. Mm-hmm. And we have an area chain of lakes where we have wells where we're getting close to that. And so we're looking at um, options for, for treating the water that we're pumping from the ground near our chain of lakes area. And we have some options that range in uh, capital costs on the low end of $21 million. On the high end, actually $67 million was the high end if we were to put in a reverse osmosis, a second reverse osmosis plant in their chain of lakes. I think we as a board have pretty much ruled out reverse osmosis. So on that low end, $21 million is going from $21 to $26 million in capital costs. We're looking at two different technologies ion exchange, and then um, GAC. And, um, and with those two technologies, we're, we're, we're trying to debate which is going to be best and also trying to figure out, you know, when we want to initiate design and construction phase. That's what we decided Wednesday night. Do we want to initiate that design and construction phase? phase as soon as January 2021 so that we can be on a timeline to be, to have a project that we we call shovel ready um, Mm -hmm. to meet the anticipated MCLs from the state of California. Um, You know, it's interesting thinking about these numbers though, Jill, uh, because you know, at the low end, 21 million, we'll go with the low end, 21 million. You know, when I um, was reviewing some of the DuPont case, I believe the DuPont company was only fined 16.5 million by the EPA mm-hmm. at the end of that case. And that's significantly lower than what we here at Zone 7, a relatively smaller water agency, are looking at investing in terms of you know, trying to treat um, some of our groundwater near the chain of lakes area of our watershed. Right. And, and so, you know, when you think about that, that, that number, you know, and, and of course there'll be operations and maintenance costs, you know, there's the capital costs to build the treatment. Yeah. It's just the capital cost. (laughs) Yeah. So then there's ongoing costs. 
you know, what are some of your concerns about financing uh, these treatment options and the ongoing costs of it? I mean, what are some of the things going through your mind as a board of director member, you know, governing this water agency? Yes. So, you know, the question always comes up, um, you know, well, what are going to be the grant sources? Are we going to be able to get grants from the federal government and from the state of California? And I have to imagine that when California passes, you know, the public health goals and the NCL levels, there will have to be some sort of grant program for agencies to apply for um, funding for these projects. And so one reason why we want to uh, initiate design construction now is that typically that grant money is awarded to those shovel-ready, those construction-ready projects. And so if we anticipate, um, you know, the MCLs being set in 2023, if we can then go to the state of California with this project ready to go, ready to be built, then we would hope to get grant money. But putting that grant money together at the state level also takes some work. And I know you and I discussed this before, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of comparison in our city, city of Pleasanton, there was a recycled water project. I believe the total cost of that project ended up being um, around $17 million, but we received a pretty large grant through Proposition 1 in California. That was a 2014 proposition that um, created a bond and had bond money available for projects that help address, you know, the water supply and, um, you know, drought uh, management projects. And and one reason the city of Pleasanton was able to get this Proposition 1 money is that the city of Pleasanton also proactively, you know, went through a design um, phase and had that shovel-ready project ready to go once uh, the California Water Board that oversees the Proposition 1 money was ready to determine, you know, who would receive a grant. And then Mm -hmm. also, not only did the city of Pleasanton receive that grant, the city of Pleasanton also received very favorable financing and very favorable loan through the Proposition 1 bond money. And so the idea is that when the PFAS NCLs are set, there will most likely be grant money available, but there may need to be a proposition passed for the fund money mm-hmm. or some other source that's undetermined. So th- th- there's a lot more that needs to be happening at the state level for this to be a possibility. Uh, my guess is that it will be there, but uh, you know, someone has to be working on this. And, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure who that is. Um, I, I and then, and then at the federal level, the EPA, you would think that the EPA also um, and also U.S. Congress as they're thinking about, uh, you know, maybe having stricter advisory levels and or having MCLs at the federal level, that there might be some sort of um, grant program. But as mm-hmm. of today, no, there isn't. And that means that you have to go it alone. I mean, in order just to do that design work, I know that was, what, about $2 million um, that you have to... Yes pony up as, again, a small water agency, and you have to plan for going it alone um, in hopes that there'll be a grant project. And I think it's important for our listeners and people, you know, in in other parts of of the country to understand this is what's vexing a lot of small local water agencies. When PFAS shows up in their in their water, their drinking water supply, whether it's groundwater, surface water, what have you, 
particularly when the source is unknown um, and, and may honestly never be known because it is so ubiquitous in the environment, then that means that local water agencies have to be prepared financially, staff-wise, you know, with consultants and, and, and what have you, to go it alone to treat water uh, to meet whether it's public health goals, maximum contamination levels, what have you. And so this is a real strain on the budget and, and the capacity for some of these small water agencies. And I, I just want to bring that to light because it's something that I haven't heard a lot of discussion about. I mean, a lot of people are talking about the issue and they're talking about the need for public policy uh, to set maximum contamination levels. But, uh, you know, I haven't heard a lot of people exploring what local water agencies are going through right now. And so, you know, I I, want to make sure that we get a chance to to ponder that. Um, And you know, we've got a couple minutes before our next commercial break. What are your thoughts on on what you want people to know about what you're going through, Olivia? Yeah, so, so in the beginning of our talk this morning, I mentioned how this is a global issue. This isn't just a local issue to, you know, the San Francisco East Bay area that we live in, the Tri-Valley region. It isn't just a United States issue. This is a global issue. And to prepare for today, I, I, I always like to look at what Europe's doing because I can find that information pretty easily. Um, and in Europe, they estimated that exposure to PFAS is going to cost Europe between 52 and 84 billion euros. And wow. in U.S. dollars, that's approximately 59 to 95 billion dollars per year. Oh that's a report my. that was published in March of 2019 uh, by the Nordic Council. And why I want to share these numbers is I I think we have an interesting comparison point for how big and how costly this issue is. And we are not going to solve this at a local water agency. This is so much bigger than us. But as you point out, we still need to keep on moving forward because we do have a mission and a duty to be able to provide water supply during drought years where we're very dependent on the groundwater. And we do want to make sure that when we pump water from the ground, that it's meeting these standards and that it is, you you know, the safe, clean drinking water that's part of our mission. Uh, Well said, Olivia. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Olivia Sanwong. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you're with us today and glad that our guest, Olivia San Wong, is with us. She's the president of the Zone 7 Water Agency in the Bay Area of California. They've been hit with PFAS in their drinking water, and it's a small agency, and they're they're trying to deal with this all on their own um, without help from the federal government and US EPA, without help from the state at this point. And we're hoping that the state of California will provide some assistance to local water agencies that are trying to clean up the PFAS in their drinking water. But for now, uh, courageous and dedicated uh, directors of local water agencies like Olivia and her fellow board members are going it alone so that they can find a way to pay for treatment options to keep delivering safe, healthy drinking water to their customers. And so I really, really, um, I really hope that those who are listening can have some some sympathy for people in the position that Olivia is in because uh, we need to understand all the things that they're considering. You know, I feel like, Olivia, that Zone 7 has been really transparent uh, and has given out a lot of information about what's going on with the water supply. Talk to us a little bit more. I know you referenced it in segment one, but I'd like for you to focus in on all the various steps that Zone 7 has taken to alert the public to the PFAS contamination issue. I mean, in summary, we're doing everything we can to get all of the information out there um, and include it in all sorts of different forms of communication, whether it's our water quality report that I referenced earlier uh, or, you know, on social media, specifically Nextdoor and Facebook are the two that we we focus on to share this information. Our own website as a source of information, also communicating with our partners and our retailers. And, 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 you know, even me participating today on this podcast is another form of you know, trying to communicate our story and our message and what we're doing. Um, you know, I think, I think for so many people, when they hear this, it can feel very scary um, because, you know, they, they, they maybe watched the movie Dark Waters, read the book, maybe they watched some documentaries about this. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that that information is out there to, to, to know that we are taking this very seriously at Zone 7 Water. We shut down the well that we need to shut down. We're we're looking for solutions should we need to access this water during drought periods. Um, and it is really important that people know that this is a priority and that it is um, something that we're taking very seriously. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, just this week, and I was part of this, but, you know, the San Francisco CBS affiliate ran a news story about the PFAS contamination issue in Pleasanton, California. Um, And it seemed like that was the first time that a lot of people caught wind of the issue. And so there was some public reaction to the story. And, you know, despite the fact that you had used all of these resources that you have at your fingertips to, to get this word out, it seemed like you know, that CBS story was the first that a lot of people had heard about it. So talk to us a little bit about how the public reacted to that story and what that means for a local water board official like yourself. Yes. um, 
So in general, there was a lot of activity in response to this segment. And um, you are correct. It was the first time a lot of people heard about the issue or thought about it was something that's happening nearby. You know, some people might hear PFOS and think, oh, you know, that's only happening in West Virginia where the DuPont plant is. Um, and, and so, like, as I mentioned, you know, it can feel scary. And I think, you know, not as many people know what Zone 7 is or come to our board meetings, so it might also be the first time they're hearing about Zone 7. Um, you know, we are also in an election season, and with the election, it's not just the top of the ballot, uh, you know, the presidential election that people are talking about. There are also local elections, such as city council elections happening, and so sometimes you might have candidates um, who are also taking this on as an issue. You know, they see this news story about Pleasanton specifically and then want to, you know, kind of ride on the coattails of that conversation, and, um, you know, they, they may not, you know, some of these candidates may not be as uh, knowledgeable about all um, that Zone 7 has done, and so these candidates could be making statements um, and the statements are incorrect. And I think right now there's just a challenge in general, Jill, in terms of the fragmentation of information, of news stories, of credible news stories and news information. And then also, you know, with social media, anyone can make any sort of comment. And so to find, you know, that source of truth can be very challenging for any issue and any topic right now. And, you know, at Zone 7 Water Agency, you know, our focus is on, you know, water supply and, you know, flood protection. You know, we're, we're not a communications agency, but we are very much tasked with having to think about communication because of all of, um, you know, what's happening right now in terms of the fragmentation of information and fragmentation of news. Um, and also specifically about the CBS story, you know, the one thing I didn't appreciate is that one of the, um, headlines they had on their news segment was that the water is toxic in Pleasanton, and that is not true. The water being delivered to the tap is safe and meets and exceeds all federal and state standards. Right, right. Important to note. And again, that is because um, you guys have been so proactive and, you know, in, in working on this issue. I do think that, you know, when the MCLs, maximum contamination levels come uh, down from the state, perhaps that will in some way be helpful in giving some uh, very concrete ways of measuring, you know, where we stand against those standards. It's tough when what you're dealing with is, um, you know, notification levels or response levels, which are a little bit squishier than a maximum contamination level. (laughs) And so that, that makes it a little bit tougher to communicate that important fact that right now what we're receiving is within regulations is within you know all of the 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 rules and regulations that you are under you know you talked about an election year and besides the you know the candidates who responded to the cbs uh you know news report what are you seeing in terms of uh just your everyday candidates in this area starting to talk about water because I feel like I'm seeing it a lot more than I have in previous years. A couple of years ago, the hot topic was traffic. And now I'm seeing a lot more from candidates about drinking water. What are you seeing, Olivia? It's true. And, and I believe because in the last 10 years in California, we had our mega drought and then 
2017, we had record rainfall and that did, um, you know, cause the need for us to also think about some of our flood protection measures um, here in the Tri-Valley region specifically. And so, and then now, and then, and then go to 2018 when we first detect PFAS in one of our wells and have to start looking into this issue locally, you know, the last 10 years we've had so many different um water issues come up that I'm not surprised it's an issue this year. And it, it really should be because, you know, as we look forward to the future, we can only predict more drought, more extreme weather, to be honest, the so more extreme drought, but then also extreme rainfall in some years. Um, you know, I, I've been doing some research into these atmospheric rivers and what happens mm-hmm. in these atmospheric rivers that we're starting to notice in California in terms of our weather patterns is that, we might not get as much snow in the Sierra snowpack, but we could still get a lot of rainfall. And so we need to think about some other alternative options in terms of being able to capture that rainfall if we're not going to have the Sierra snowpack. And real quick, I know our time's getting short, but I can mention, you know, at Zone 7, we're really working hard to diversify our water po- portfolio so that we have many options in regards to drought. And one example is the Sites Reservoir Project up near the Sacramento River. And that will be a project that will enable us to capture more of that rainfall water so that should we not have as much snow in the Sierra snowpack, but we still get that rain, we would have access to that reservoir water during drought periods. And and again, that just speaks to the forward planning um, and the hard work of the staff and board of directors at this local water agency. And I know that a lot of other water agencies are doing the same thing. We have about one minute left. So, Olivia, talk to your fellow local water agency board members about this issue. What advice do you have? 60 seconds or less. You know, stick with it, plan for it, have the conversations, make every effort to get the information out to your customers and to your constituents. Um, This is a really important topic that we need to, you know, have these transparent conversations about and to prioritize. And, you know, I also would like to make myself available as someone if, you know, and one of my colleagues in a fellow water agency wants to uh, reach out to. I am open to that uh, line of communication and happy to share my thoughts and on a personal level. And I, I hope me thank being you, here Olivia. today on your show, thank you so much, will also help, you know, other water agency directors and water agency employees think about different methods and different ways to address this important issue. I so appreciate you, Olivia, and thank you so much for that. And thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.